0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
1: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
2: I turned 50 in that year as well. and was just like, oh my gosh molly shannon you know that? molly shannon yeah. oh
3: yeah i'm 15.
2: I'm 50, 50, yeah. you know, like something has happened here and it really is real and i felt it on the making of it and i feel oh. it in my life i have not been happier
3: hello everyone and welcome to the awardist, where we are chatting with the actors creators and more who are contenders this year and breaking down the state of the 2024 Oscars race I'm entertainment weekly executive editor Jared Hall and joining me we were already laughing right before this uh, we hit record on this podcast (laughs) it's EW's (laughs) Oscars expert Joey Nolfi we're gonna have a lively conversation today aren't we Joey oh yes we are we (laughs) absolutely
4: are the golden globes have me riled up oh Oh, boy go
3: yeah uh, that that is certainly uh, the the big news from earlier this week Uh, I do want to let folks know we have a bit of a longer episode for you today because we have two interviews in this one we have american fiction writer and director cord jefferson as well as origin writer and director ava duvernay uh these are um Two uh, films I really enjoyed this year uh, and and really enjoyed my conversation with Ava. Uh, Cord is in conversation with EW's Lester Brathwaite. Uh, so stick around for those. Uh, but first, uh, I mean, let's get into it, Joey. Golden Globe well, nominations. Let me just say,
4: Jared, oh, uh-huh, if uh-huh. only Killers of the Flower Moon, Anatomy of a Fall, and Oppenheimer had such a polite warning about their runtimes, <laughs>
3: as you just did for oh, the length of this touche. Podcast.
4: Oh, Touche. <laughs>
3: I mean, I felt like we let you know that Killers was long, Joey. I told you not to drink any liquids two hours before you see the movie.
4: Yes. Well, we'll get <laughs> yeah. into all of that good tea, won't we?
3: Yeah. Oh, we sure will. Um, <laughs> so Golden Globe nominations. I want to start here with this because, um, you know the 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 Golden Globes, the 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 organization which used to include the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. They they kind of went through um, some turbulent times in the past yeah. few years. The HFPA has been dissolved, but a lot of the people, a lot of the journalists who were part of that, are now part of this the 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 Golden Globes uh, organization, uh, and they are still the ones who are are voting. They are selecting the nominees and selecting the winners, but. Uh, in essence by removing this this bigger you know hFPA um, they, they took away took away a lot of things that were problematic like those those screenings and the parties and all that kind of stuff that a lot of people felt were problematic and they also have uh, put in place a plan to expand uh, and diversify their membership more that's in short uh, right the steps that they are taking to uh, kind of overcome the problems they've had
4: yeah i i just think that there's there's no real way to m- measure what they're right. doing it's just sort of all what they say right it's kind of doing. a please
3: take our word for it <laughs> yeah
4: and i just i i mean i don't know like i yeah the hfpa is gone but it kind of feels like it might just be in title alone like mm-hmm. i mean those members right. are still in the group and they have yep. over 300 members now which is great and i do yeah. think yeah they, they so far if what they are saying is true then yes i think that they have made Uh, a lot of
3: progress. Indeed, uh, so let, let's let's hope that is true because I really yeah. do uh, hope so. Um, and and this year the coverage I think is uh, a, a big difference from last year. You know, last yes. year uh, talent they were not submitting their you know reaction statements to nominations. If things were fairly quiet around last year's show. Um, this year uh, it, it feels a bit more like business as usual um, uh, with a big you know nomination yeah. announcement and everything. Uh, Cedric the Entertainer and Wilmer Valderrama announcing those nominees. <laughs> (laughs) Uh, So let's get into them. Uh, The the big story, of course, the the big headline is that Barbie leads all film nominees with uh, nine nominations. You want to run through those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So they got, um, uh, so Barbie leads all nominees with nine, (laughs) Bobby.
4: (laughs) (laughs) The Lindsay Lohan movie. Wasn't there a movie called Bobby?
3: (laughs) I don't know.
4: (laughs) Nine Uh, nominations 16 years later.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So Barbie leads all film nominees with nine nominations, including Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy. Director for Greta Gerwig Actress musical or comedy for Margot Robbie Supporting actor for Ryan Gosling And they got three of the best original song uh, slots For uh, What Was I Made For Billie Eilish, Dance the Night, Dua Lipa And uh, the the My song feet. that Ryan Gosling sings I'm Just Ken um, A lot of people really uh, as, as I've been out and about And was actually at a Barbie event a couple weeks ago um, Talking you to people were- they kind of really hope that uh, I'm Just Ken at least gets nominated so we get that performance. But I heard some who think they think it should actually win. I don't know where I stand on that. I I unfortunately think
4: it will win Oh, uh, just because it's so – I think with Best Original Song winners, they usually are the songs that – become synonymous with the movies themselves and i i think immediately i mean i know i'm the biggest lady gaga stand but i immediately think of shallow for a star yeah. is born i mean that yeah. movie or that song represented that movie and i think i'm just mm-hmm. ken has become so associated with that film that people are voting in essence for the film as much as they're yeah. voting for the song mm-hmm. so because i know historically they have on even the voting ballots have not put the artists names they right. just put the movie and right. the title of the song so yeah yeah i think well that's gonna be pretty and if you're if you have three barbie songs let's say all three of these songs also get nominated at the oscars mm. which i know warner brothers did an interesting campaign for a star is born where there were so many amazing songs on that album, but they only Mm. pushed shallow. So I'm not sure what the strategy is here, but I think it would be wise for them to ditch maybe the Billie Eilish song and the Dua Lipa song Mm. and go for focus on one and focus on one. Mm. Um, Or, I mean, I don't see where that will happen. I'm not just, I'm not saying like, I'm saying if they're going to push, I'm just Ken ditch the other two or if they're yeah. just going to push the Billie eilish song ditch the other two if they're right. just going to push the dualipa yeah. song ditch the other two
3: yeah but no they're going for all three Dua Lipa, Billie eilish uh mark ronson they were all at that barbie event i was at uh, a couple weeks ago in addition to greta and Margot ryan america ferrera um so they're they're going all in on it um did Dua i think there's like also
4: the
3: yeah oh she did okay all right yeah uh, so Where's Miss Diane Warren this year? Diane Warren was at that party, by the way. <gasps> of course uh, there, were actually, there were actually um, uh, several, uh, spotted so, several songwriters and composers oh, at, that, um, at that Warren event. Yeah, there. I think they wanted to get their fellow, you know, uh, songwriters uh, there to, you know, to kind of help boost their chances of getting those nominations. So, Wait, yeah, it's really interesting. It feels like they're the going for year? it. Any of the um, Golden Globe songs? She's not. She's not in any of the right. Golden
4: Globe songs, but uh, no. she does have a song in contention this year. Yes,
3: yeah, she does. She does. So, yeah, I think they're just going for it. I think they want to just as many nominations as they can get. Um, and I, I mean, well, I kind of don't blame them if you have the momentum. Go true, for it.
4: but as we see every year, usually the film that has the most nominations is not the film that ends up being front runner or the winner like i there is no world in which i think barbie is the at the front of the oscar race right now
3: no no i I completely agree with you um right behind barbie uh eight nominations christopher nolan's oppenheimer (sighs) uh oh geez the disdain (laughs) and then uh killers of the flower moon and poor things both scored seven nominations and celine songs film past lives got five Uh, Celine Song even got in for uh, best director Uh, okay so let's back up I I, I'm reluctantly opening the door here killers of the flower moon lay it out Joey
4: Jared I will just say that Jared the views and expressions represented on this podcast by Joey Nolte do not represent (laughs) the views and expressions spoken by Jared Hall um (laughs) uh, I think that someone, and by someone I mean everybody who isn't me, mm-hmm. needs to get serious. Like, <laughs> oh, these—I mean, these men and their cameras. Someone needs to, I think, tell them to to maybe trim a little bit off of their movies because I think Killers is like—I mean—the last scene moved me so much um and it's a really vital important scene oh it's such an important scene it is so like the way that i mean i don't want to spoil it for anybody who like me waited this long because they didn't want to go to the theater for a three and a half hour movie (laughs) um but it's such an important message it's such an important what you take away from the film thematically is so much better and more important than i think the actual film itself um the film itself i think is bloated i think it's over long i think that i, I it's like you know i'm watching these movies like the same thing i was doing with oppenheimer mm-hmm. and as soon as i'm on a scene i'm like okay we could have cut this we could have cut this like i mean i just am a fan of getting to your point a little bit quicker and well i guess that's the wrong thing to say i i mean i think the point I, I want to make sure make clear that I'm separating the thematic and emotional intent of this film from the actual filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to sit here and be saying, I, cause I'm not saying Martin Scorsese is a bad filmmaker by any means. Like he's a God, mm-hmm. but I just think that with, we saw it with Oppenheimer, we see it with this. I just think that these guys who have been doing this for a really long time have a hard time stepping back and killing their darlings a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think that their films would benefit from that. Like Christopher Nolan should have cut the entire last hour from Oppenheimer. And mm-hmm. I, I just, the, the same with this. I mean, I just, the, I don't know. I, I just don't know that every scene of this film that's three and a half hours long just can justify itself as being in this movie. I mean, I just, it, it's, it's, it's too long. It, it is. And when, when, you know, I know we talked a little bit earlier about Thelma and her like getting annoyed that that theater was doing right. the intermissions intermission. and yeah. Martin saying at one point, I believe he said that something to the effect of like, well, people can, they binge watch television at their homes. And I'm like, yes, but you, you were we choosing to do, and do what that we and you need. can hit yeah. pause and do other things and you can it, you're breaking up your day it's not like you're sitting there and nobody is sitting there on their couch for eight hours not doing anything i just think that the experience of going to a theater is different it's changing even just from a business perspective like i mean to book out a theater for a three and a half hour movie you can only show that movie so many times during the day and it's just like mm-hmm. I, I i don't get it i, I really don't get it um i just it's very rare to me that you find a movie that is over three hours long where i'm like yeah that movie needed to be over three hours long Mm. even titanic i'm sorry
3: yeah i mean i agree with you in terms of the does a movie need to be uh over three hours no was i personally bored by killers no um I, i actually enjoyed the amount of time that i got to spend with um I, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but, but getting to experience as much as I could of the, the uh, heartache of the, the Osage people and what, yeah. what they were experiencing. And um, because they're just, obviously there's so few stories about it that, that really show you from their perspective, how horrific it was versus, yes. you know, old Those Westerns things and are stuff. Powerful. Yes, yeah. Very powerful. So, yeah. So, so I did, I, I in, I, I'm glad I got to spend that time with them. Um, but, uh, but I do know what you mean. There is a certain element of like the pacing that could, could we have just like done some things a little different, but um, yeah. I think the film's beautifully shot. I I love oh, all of the gorgeous. performances. It's, yeah, the it's performances, gorgeous. The
4: performances, Lily, oh my God, Lily Gladstone is yeah. a revelation. She yeah. is incredible. And I know that the Los Angeles film critics I mean, there was a lot of debate about before the season about whether she should be lead or supporting after seeing this. Mm -hmm. I do think that she is lead. I I would not put her in supporting. And that was, I think, very, very disrespectful of them to put her in uh, supporting. And I think that they did it on purpose to sort of send a message that was like, hey, no, she's supporting. We think she's supporting. And it was really disheartening to see that
3: yeah it's an interesting conversation there because uh she is of course the female lead of the movie but if we're looking at like comparative screen time in those regards i guess you could call her supporting but also Mm. to me it's just weird to put in supporting uh this is a movie about the experience of the osage people and you put the the the, yeah right you put her then yeah
4: that's the thing is that i mean i know we've had this conversation before too about you know, that I think Brie Larson and room is actually supporting because I think that that story singularly is about Jacob Tremblay's character. But Mm -hmm. this film, I mean, yes, this is where a thing where I think those distinctions don't necessarily matter. I think the story Mm -hmm. is largely, she stands in for so many people whose stories have not been told. And she is what this entire story hinges around. And we do get a lot of scenes from her perspective. And Especially that last scene. I mean, oh my God, I get chills thinking about it, her last scene. But I mean, she is the central part of this story. She is one of the leading roles. I don't think there is one leading role in this. And screen time, regardless of screen time, I think there, there, there's two main leading roles. Arguably, I, I mean, you could say maybe three. But no, Leonardo and Lily are the leads of this film.
3: Yeah. Um, okay, so between that and Oppenheimer, because I think it probably comes down to the two of them. When we're looking at Globe's drama yeah. winner, do you think it's between the two? Yeah.
4: You think it's Killers is taking it. Um I, I think that I think Killers There's is taking it. There's an insane the amount of
3: momentum for that movie right now.
4: Yeah. I, I think I I mean I hate to declare it over this early, but like I it just feels I it feels like Killers is gonna be our sort of steamroll of the season, I think.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, so in addition to then, let's go back to Barbie just for a second in musical or comedy. Uh, It's up against Air, American Fiction, The Holdovers, (laughs) May, December, and Poor Things. Do you think, uh, which by the way, want to note here, this is the musical- or comedy category. And, and no color purple. The color purple is not in here. Wonka is not in here. Oh, uh, Jared. I, I'm just, I, look, I'm just saying, we know how Jared. traditionally the Golden Globes, they go for, they want certain stars at their the, ceremony. The, just well, saying I, it.
4: This is, I think, of recent ceremonies, the most Golden Globes nominations that we've had in recent years there are so many a-listers leonardo yeah. dicaprio uh timothy chalamet yeah. for wonka jennifer lawrence um, emma stone I mean, it, two emma nominations stone, it, it yeah. just yes and i
3: think taylor swift
4: taylor swift um taylor swift but um i i think air is your globesy sort of nomination in this category yeah. everything else seems very much like it has actual best picture heat i mean air like come on that like you just wanted matt damon to show up at your ceremony and uh yeah i that that's the only I'm one that sticks athletic. out to me
3: yeah uh, you know? but do you, you think barbie takes this one <sighs> no hesitation
4: this is this this one's difficult um mm-hmm. i would say i think in this one god i don't know because it's like poor things yorgos is also in there that's the
3: one i was gonna say i could see poor things taking this and barbie getting that new category that they introduced yeah uh cinematic and box office achievement
4: i yeah i think that's probably what's what's that's what i'm going for right now yeah poor things and then barbie for cinematic box office yeah
3: Okay, um, and then I want to talk quickly about uh, drama actors. We've got Bradley yes. Cooper for Maestro, uh, Leo, as we've talked about, Killers of the Flower Moon, Coleman Domingo for Rustin, Barry Keoghan getting Yay! in there for Saltburn, love that, Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer, and uh, just a devastating performance. Andrew Scott in All of Us Strangers. Um, I know you're you're pretty big on Bradley Cooper's uh, best actor run this season. You think he'll take this? I do. I think because we he hasn't. I mean, we, th- this is where it's the
4: really difficult time period because these actors haven't really gone up against each other yet. Once we start getting the industry matchups like uh, at SAG and even the critics choice, choice kind of uh, aligns better with Oscar than the Golden Globes do. So we'll see how those play out. But it's it's too early to tell right now. But I'm just I'm feeling like, I mean yes leonardo dicaprio is playing a real person yes coleman domingo is playing a real person so is killian murphy but i, I this is an entertainment industry figure who was very complicated he was queer he was he, netflix is really pushing this um bradley seems to be getting all of these industry honors for his directing as well so it just it's it's pushing toward and he's also so overdue he is so overdue So yeah, I, I, I'm feeling like Bradley right now. Mm -hmm.
3: And it's also worth noting two other names who have really been, uh, you know, a big part of the conversation this year. Uh, They are nominated, but they're in the musical or comedy category, Paul Giamatti for the holdovers and Jeffrey Wright for American fiction. Uh, they're also up against Nicolas Cage for dream scenario, Timothy Chalamet for Wonka, Matt Damon for air and Joaquin Phoenix for Bo, uh, Bo is afraid.
4: Um,
3: that's a, yeah. I mean, I, I would like to think that's probably between Paul and Jeffrey, but um,
4: I think it's probably going to go to Jeffrey. Uh, yeah. but
3: it's a oh, very funny g-
4: performance. It, but but so Joaquin. is Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti is yeah. funny as well, and yeah, Paul is great. Um, I I think that the I mean obviously Joaquin, Timothy, and Nicholas are not going to go to the Oscars. So I do think it's going to be between and Matt. We don't even need to to say that. But um, I, I Paul Jeffrey Bradley Leo and it's between Killian and Coleman um, for the fifth slot at the Oscars. But yeah, I mean, dreams
3: it's a tough list this year. There are really like eight at this point that I think are fighting for the five. Yes. Um, yes. And, and honestly, the same can be said on the actor side at the Globes yeah. uh, for drama. Annette Benning for NIAID, uh Lily Gladstone, oh. of course, killers oh. of the flower moon, Sandra Ula for uh, anatomy of a fall, <gasps> Greta Lee for past lives, yay, Carrie Mulligan for yay. maestro. Kaylee Spaney got in there for Priscilla. Uh, And then for musical or comedy, the best uh, actress nominees are Fantasia Fantasia. Barrino, The Color Purple. There she is. Jennifer Lawrence for No Hard Feelings. She's very funny in that movie. Natalie Portman is great. May, December. Uh, Alma Poisty for Fallen (laughs) Leaves. Uh, Margot Robbie for Barbie and Emma Stone for Poor Things. Um, Gosh. You don't
4: even have to set me up for comment, Jared. I'm just ready to go. Um, Go for it. I just, I mean, I will say I was saying at the beginning of the season that Kaylee Spaney was going to be something and nobody wanted to listen to me. I unfortunately pulled her out of my predictions before they went live, but I'm thinking about putting her back in.
3: Uh, but I, I don't know, because you look at musical or comedy, there are th- three in there who could and should be nominated for Oscars. So it's Oh, a, I
4: agree. I, But yeah. I just think that, I, I'm just saying, I think that Kaylee is, I think she's coming. I think she's mm. coming. I'm not. I'm not quite ready to put her mm. back in yet, but I think she's going to get a SAG nomination. So I, I, she's she's playing an entertainment figure. I mean, she's playing yeah. a person in the entertainment industry. They love that. I, the the one that I don't get mm-hmm. is out of all of this. I, I knew it, people said it was coming. They've been saying it was coming since TIFF, but Annette Benning and Nyad is one of the worst directed performances I think I've ever seen in a major awards contender. Not necessarily Annette's fault. Um, I just think that it needed better direction. I I think that she's in a different movie.
3: You you know what? I I think what's interesting for me about that film is that, and gritty is not the right word, but I wish there was something that was a little more in in the presentation of the film. Something a little... um, like it was, it's just too like glossy and shiny. Which yeah. of course, there's like this great message, you know, with this film of like your age shouldn't matter. Don't you know let it put restrictions on what well, you're yeah, able to do. But there's also do, accusations
0: but... that she just lied about everything.
3: <laughs> oh
4: well, like don't give up as long as you lie. <laughs> well,
3: I mean unsubstantiated claims at this point, right? Yeah, making yes, yes, yeah. But it's um. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I I'm with you on that. I, I'm I'm not in love with the movie. Um, but I, I do like the performances, but I see what you mean. They I, I would even say Jodie Foster. They feel like they're a bit in a different film. Yeah. Um, yeah, they do. They're having they're having great fun with other. Yeah, each the two other, of them but, together are great, yeah. but mm-hmm. I know what you mean. I know the what you go. mean. Yeah, but gosh, these categories. I mean, it's it's great to see some of these names in here um, because I've been feeling a little worried about some of them and their Oscar chances. So here, this of course helps give them a little bit of a boost. Um, Greta, I hope Greta can. Oh my gosh. That that Greta train, that past lives train, it's got to keep chugging along. I certainly hope. Um, By the way, I want to run through just over the next month or so how many different uh, you know nominating bodies or awards bodies will be announcing their winners. Uh, Of course, the Golden Globes are on January seventh, so we're getting the year started off right. Um, SAG nomination voting is currently happening; it closes on the seventh, and then those nominees are announced three days later on January tenth. The following day. Oscar nomination voting begins. So Oscar nominations will, uh, they will have had the influence of the globe winners being announced and SAG nominations being announced. Then Oscar nominating voting begins on January 11th and it ends on the 16th, a very small window, five days in there. Uh, PGA, uh, nominations will also be announced in that period on January 12th. Uh, and then the critics choice awards will happen on the 14th. So, um, so there's a lot going on before Oscar nomination voting even ends. It's worth noting, yeah. Potential, uh, not not necessarily influence, but you know, you you really start to see how some of these categories are really shaping up um, by the time Academy members, you know, put. I was going to say yeah. pen to paper. It's not like it's a paper ballot, but, you know, I, fingers I, to keyboard I, to select their nominees. True.
4: I want to also point out one awards body that usually um, flies under my radar, but mm-hmm. thanks to a, a conversation over the weekend with um, one of our lovely former colleagues, David, um, he yeah. w- he and I were talking about the European Film Academy, and yeah. the, he brought up the point that last year a uh, triangle of sadness sort of swept the european film awards and this year it was anatomy of a fall yeah. and i think i was ready to count that movie out but i think um looking at the european film academy mm-hmm. uh and, or the european film awards i i think anatomy is also uh back in there and i think bafta could also uh play a huge role in uh telling us where these things are going. yeah go, so.
3: well I, I mean and i to to give you credit as well you've been reminding us all season here let, let's let not forget how the academy has expanded its membership to include a lot more international members so european um, so, especially yeah yeah so yeah definitely keeping that in mind for anatomy uh i, I think mm-hmm. you've brought it up on past episodes in regards to uh the zone of interest though i'm really not sure where that one stands anymore that's the um, curious and also, one for me this yeah, year is because
4: yeah. it, it showed, I didn't, it, would you have even thought that this would show up at the drama uh, category at the Globes? I never would have guessed that.
3: Yeah, no, it's just, I think it's just such a complicated film right now. It's, yeah. it's a movie. I uh, all due respect to everything Jonathan Glazer did, um, but I never want to see the movie again.
4: Yeah. Same. I remember um, you saying it's, that. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's just a, it's a hard movie to watch and, and absorb and art can be that way and that's yeah. fine. But, um, yeah, I, I don't want to like live in that space again, I guess is yeah. uh, what I'm saying. Um, and, and, to that point of those two films, uh, you know, all of us strangers, we can't count out, uh, either. They've, they've made a little bit of a surge as we talked about last week. Yeah. So yeah yeah obviously still so much could happen um in in the coming weeks um and and we'll be right here and on ew.com uh making sure everyone is up to date on uh you know with our scorecard joey's keeping track of that uh and and uh, our heat index we'll have a lot more to come with all of that uh all right joey so how about we take a quick break and for all of you listening when we come back we will have american fiction writer and director cord jefferson the awardist will be right back Welcome back to The Awardist. Uh, Up first, our first of two interviews in this episode. Uh, This film kind of took folks by surprise, came out of nowhere to win the Toronto International Film Festival's People's Choice Award that is voted on by audiences. I'm talking about American fiction from Cord Jefferson, who uh, has written on all kinds of series, but this is his feature film debut uh it is an adaptation of the percival everett novel erasure starring jeffrey wright tracy ellis ross sterling k brown Issa ray erica alexander john ortiz many more uh it is one of my favorite films of the year and uh so right now we are going to uh play for you our interview with cord in conversation with ew's lester brathwaite
0: Cord, this is your directorial debut. Was that intentional? Did you always intend to direct this or was it like a happy accident?
1: No, it was it was uh it was a package deal. I said I, I wrote the script and then I said if you if you want to read the script you have to agree to let me direct the thing before I'll before I'll let you read the script. So it was just always a uh yeah, it was always like if you if you weren't willing to accept me then I wasn't gonna let you read the script.
0: Hmm. Why was that? Why did you want to direct it?
1: For the past several years, I'd been interested in directing. I'd been working in TV. You know, when I was in, uh, I was working on Master of None back in 2016. And Aziz Ansari said to me, you know, we were talking about directors for the episodes. And he said, Have you ever thought about directing? And I said, Well, you know, I don't really direct. That's not really, I don't know anything about cameras. I've never been to film school. And he said, He was like, I've never, he was like, I didn't go to film school. I went to NYU for business. And he was like, and I got nominated for a golden globe for directing. He was like, you don't have to go to film school. Uh, And, and so, so he was like, all you need to do is like, he's like, you've been, you spent time on set and you, I'm sure that you have a vision when you're writing a script, sort of like what you want the room to look like and what you want the characters to look like. And, And he said, you know, just, you just have to have a vision and be able to articulate that vision. So he had planted that seed in 2016. And, and I'd been thinking about it since then. Um, but I sort of, I'd, I'd anticipated that it was going to be a lot of work just because I'd heard people talk about how intensive of a, of a an, an laborious process it can be. So I knew that I wanted to try it. But I said, if, I, if I'm if i going to do it, like, I don't want it to just be like, I just get plunked onto something that doesn't mean a lot to me, because I sort of like knew that it was going to be a, a, a big process. And I didn't want to just step into something that i wasn't fully in love with uh and sort of like make that part of my life for years because i knew that i would be become miserable. So i was always kind of like holding out to see what would come to me and and when i found this novel i just felt it so deep in my bones. I felt like i understood the material so deeply in my bones that i felt like you know it just felt like okay even if i get to set And everything is foreign to me. Let's say so like I do get to set and I feel underwater when it comes to lighting and I feel underwater when it comes to cameras and I feel like out of my depth in everything. The thing that I said was that I know this story though. Like I know this story. Like I understand the characters, I understand the emotions, like I understand the story from back to front in a really, really personal way. So, it felt like even if I get there and this other stuff feels like I'm out of my depth, like the sort of like at least the movie we're trying to make, like I understand it and sort of like I can build around that. And so, you know, I got to set and there was a learning curve with some stuff. There was a learning curve about, you know, cameras and lighting and stuff. There was a learning curve with some of that stuff, but that never really intimidated me too much because I like... I was like, okay, that stuff will come, and I'll under—I can understand that on the go, and I can sort of like hire people to help me with that. But like, as far as like a foundational understanding of what we were there to make, like I knew it. I sort of like had the movie in my head, and I knew what we needed to get there. And so, for me, that was like a great first. It's a good first project because sort of like it's there's not car chases and explosions and all this stuff that i sort of like really would discombobulate me you know it was like people talking and sort of like people in rooms discussing issues you know and so i felt like i could come there there isn't sort of like a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to that kind of stuff and that kind of storytelling it's like i feel very comfortable in this in this sort of in this story and i feel really comfortable in this world in a way that just kind of put me at ease and I knew that this would be a really great first project just because, um, yeah, there was no piece of art had ever resonated with me on a deeper level than, than this book. And so I just felt like I know it on, on such a, like almost on a, on a, on a, you know, I know it in sort of like a, like at the the smallest level to the biggest level. Like I understood all the granular details of it.
0: Did you have like a mood board or a collection of movies in your head that served as inspiration for you when you came to like came behind the camera?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like the real, I think a real spiritual predecessor to this film in a very real way is this movie called the Hollywood shuffle for me. Yeah. Uh, that was Robert Townsend uh, directed and, and starred in in 1987. He also wrote, co-wrote it with Keenan Ivory Wayans. So that to me was like, that movie inspired me in such a deep way when I was, when I was a, young boy. Uh, And I feel like it was the first time that I didn't even know what satire meant. But I sort of understood, you know, it was the first time that I think I ever encountered satire that like actually moved me. And it was like, it was the first movie that I saw where I was like, Oh, these are, these guys are talking about racism, and like these serious issues. But they're like, having fun with it and doing it in like a really funny way. And they're not, and they're kind of like goofing off in a way that I was like, Oh, this is, this feels exciting to me in a way that sort of like other kinds of stuff didn't feel exciting to me. I just remember being young and being like, there's something, there's something here that's really sort of um, causing my brain to sort of like fire off in a way that, that it hadn't uh, in front of other stuff. And so, uh, that and then some movies that were on my mood board were like Squid and the Whale, that mm-hmm. Noah Baumbach movie. Um, Wonder Boys uh, was was sort of like another influence, um, and Nicole Holoff Center was sort of like a really big influence for me. I think that the, uh, I think particularly Nicole Holoff Center and, and Noah Baumbach, uh, what they what they do really well is really get it sort of like the tone of life and just sort of, you know, life is neither comedy nor tragedy. It's sort of like frequently both of those things at once. Um, and so that was another thing that I, when I came into this movie, I wanted to make sure like, so I was inspired by like the satire of, of Hollywood shuffle. Right. Um, but I also wanted to make sure that the movie didn't collapse under the weight of the satire. Like I never wanted to become, I never wanted to become farce. I sort of, like, I wanted the satire to be good without the film ever becoming farcical and silly. And so, um, to me, sort of the the goal was to, like, include the satirical stuff and some of those um, bigger comedic beats, but also make sure that the rest of the story stayed grounded and felt um, naturalistic and authentic, you know, in many ways. And so uh, that, to me, was, was sort of, you know, coming in with kind of, like, Nicole Holof Center and Noah Baumbach bouncing around in my brain sort of like their ability to, um, to blend the tones of sort of like of drama and comedy and their ability to sort of like their commitment to, uh, just telling real stories that feel like actual life like that to me was, was another thing that I was, was aiming for. So yes, the satire stuff, um, you know, bam, I, I went and watched Bamboozled again before I started working on this. I went and watched Sorry to Bother You again before I started working on this. I went and watched Putney Swope, which I had never seen before, the first time before, before working on this. Um, and so that stuff was like all rattling around in my brain. Um, but I would say the sort of like the, the real, the real to me sort of like things that were on the mood board were, were Hollywood Shuffle and Wonder Boys and and friends with money and um, Squid in the Whale. Hmm.
0: And satire is such a hard tone to nail down, especially in translating from one medium to another. Like, what was, what did you change specifically in the book, or leave out, or add to the movie that you, that d- get the tone right for the movie?
1: One big thing that I changed is that in the in the novel, his sister is murdered. Uh, His sister is an abortion doctor, and she's murdered by a uh, a radical anti-abortion activist. Um, And that, you know, if you have that in a movie, the the movie changes pretty drastically. (laughs) It's difficult to have a murder in a movie and then kind of like make the rest of the movie not about this murder uh, particularly sort of like one as politically energized and charged as that one. So I changed that. Um, you know, in the movie besides, you know, he's, he has this philandering father. Uh, but in the book there's, you know, not only is his father a philanderer, he finds out that in fact, his father has an entirely, uh, a, a secret family that, uh, lives sort of lives in New York city. And, and, the lead character goes to New York and ends up writing this big check to his half sister who he's never met. So there's these big departures um, in ways that, you know, again, sort of like try, if you're trying to condense a film and to streamline it, you know, they, these were some pretty, pretty big departures from sort of like the rest of the story that, that make it, make it difficult to translate that to, to film. And then there's a couple of things that, you know, the, the, the like for instance, when I was reading the when I was reading the book, I was very, very excited for the for the eventual confrontation between Monk and Centara, who in the film is played by Issa Rae. And that never that never comes. That scene is not in the book. And so when I sat down to to write the film, I knew immediately like, oh I want this is an important scene. Just because I had been craving it so much. To me, sort of like that's always a good indication as to as to something you should write is just if you're like if you're so enthusiastic about 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 this idea and then this idea doesn't come to come to pass when you're reading something. That to me is like, you know, one of the first things you should put in when you're adapting something is sort of like in your reading, what are you searching for that you're not finding? And so that to me was also important to put in because I didn't want it to be, you know, I wanted to give voice to that character. because it was also important. I mean, I know that it was important to Jeffrey that we not make a movie that felt like it was policing blackness and policing art. I never, we never wanted it to be like Bill Cosby, pull up your pants, respectability politics. This is how, you know, this is how you, this is how you're a good black person. Uh, that was, that was sort of something that I was, uh, worked very, very hard to avoid in the, in the drafting of the script. And then when I, when, when I talked to Jeffrey, the fir- Jeffrey's first thing was, he was like, I want to make sure that this isn't like a talented 10th movie that we're sort of a, that we're sort of like coming in and saying like, here's how, here's how we save black people from like themselves. And so we never wanted it to be that. I never wanted it to be that. And so it was important to me to also to sort of make sure that that was Clear in the material was that sort of like this wasn't the kind of movie that was out to sort of again, like I said, like finger wag and tell people, like, you're doing it wrong, you're being naughty, this is how you should think, and this is how you should behave. We wanted to sort of avoid that at all costs. So, to me, the sort of finding a tone of, you know, the book's a little darker, the book's a little bit more acerbic, the, you know, the, the book is, you know, obviously when you're having a, a person murdered. That sort of like sets a, a much darker tone, sort of the, the, than than the I think the film the film has. So there was just a bunch of stuff that I did to, you know, uh, I think sort of like make the movie I make the movie a little bit more buoyant while also sort of like maintaining, you know, the fact that this is you know this is a, a you know it's a thing for adults. It's there there is some tragedy, there is some difficulty. There's death. There's you know there's some pretty heavy subjects, but just in ways, hopefully that are a little bit more accessible than, um, for, for film audiences than they would be for, uh, for people who go read the book. And I think that, you know, the book is great. I love the book. Uh, uh the book means, like I said, it resonated with me more deeply than any piece of art ever has. That being said, it was just, you know, translating that stuff. And, and the thing that, you know, a great, a really great compliment that I received is I invited Percival Everett and his wife, who's a wonderful, a wonderful writer herself named Danzy Senna. Um, They came over to see the film one night at my house when I was still working on it. And I was so afraid. I was so afraid that they were going to dislike it. Um, But the thing that Percival said after he watched it was he said, you know, the thing that I really appreciate about it is that you clearly used my book as like a launch pad, but then you went and made something that feels entirely, unique unto itself. Like you made a piece of art that stands alone. And, um, that meant the world to me. It was, he was like, it's not just like a carbon copy of, of the book that I wrote. It's kind of, you know, you seeking something that you want to seek and sort of make as, as opposed to just remaking the book and that, that, uh, he was right. You know, I, I I saw, I changed a lot in sort of like pursuit of something that was slightly different. Mm.
0: Now this film is starting to pick up a lot of momentum. It's one at TIFF and recently at Scad. Can you talk about like what that means to you and like how audiences are responding to this film?
1: Yeah, um, it is overwhelming in in that uh, you know when you make when you make anything, you know, it's a vulnerable experience to make something and put it into the world, uh, particularly when you're doing it for the first time. So I, you know. I'd never written a movie before where I was just the, you know, the sole writer. Uh, everything that I'd written before was, was on a TV show where things are written by committee and you're sort of, you're collaborating with other people on everything. Um, and so this was the first time that I'd just written something by myself and this was the first time ever that I'd directed anything. So I was very, very afraid to put this into the world. I was, I was, I liked it. I knew that I was proud of it. I knew that, that um, I thought it was good, but, you know, you don't make movies to just watch them yourselves. You make movies to, to show them to people and, and to, and to sort of, you know, uh, to, to let the world sort of like make, make it, make of it what they will. And so, um, yeah, I put it out in the hopes that other people would like it. And, you know, the thing that's been really gratifying about those audience awards is that, you know, any, any honors, great. Any sort of like anybody who wants to, to praise the work is, is uh, I will believe me, I will welcome as much praise as people, as people want to, to uh, give about the film. But, but I think that the, you know, the thing that's nice about the audience awards and stuff is, is that it's not, you know, it's not like a jury, an assembled jury. It's not like uh, you know, like an awards council that's sort of like coming together and sort of like um, being judicious about about their choices it's it's just people who like to go to the movies you know it's just it's just people who are like fans of of cinema who just are, are coming to to a film festival because they like watching movies and i think that, that that is um that's really nice it's really nice to 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 know that there's an audience for this because i know that you know one of the things that i think that a lot of people turned this movie down a lot of people said that they didn't want to make this movie a lot of people said that they didn't work at a place where they could make this movie, and I think that, you know, it wasn't because the movie's very expensive. Uh, the the places that said that they couldn't make this movie regularly make movies worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Regularly make movies that where where they spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on the production budget, and then hundreds of millions of dollars on the marketing budget. Like the, I wasn't talking to to sort of like these very small operations where they're just like, you know, if we give you this amount of money in the movie flops like we're going bankrupt and everybody's losing their jobs. Like this, these are not people who are saying this. These are people, the people who are saying like, we cannot make this movie just didn't have the will to make the movie. They have all the money in the world. They just didn't have the, they were not willing to take the risk. And so, you know, to me, uh, the fact that audiences are coming to the film and enjoying it and appreciating it, uh, it's great because hopefully, hopefully, you know, the, the, hopefully it opens the door for, for somebody behind me who wants to try to make something that's a little risky. And that sort of like, is, is, isn't a guarantee, isn't a sure thing that, that, you know, hopefully the, the sort of like the, you know, these kinds of things, like if anything good can come of it, um, besides just me feeling good about getting an award, you know, hopefully it's that like, you know, two, three, four, ten, twenty years from now, when somebody else is coming up with with a with a sort of a movie that feels a little left of center and different, that people might say like, "Oh, you know what? Like, I, I, this is risky, but like, you know, we thought that American Fiction was risky too, and like, look, people people like that movie, so um, hopefully hopefully it might lead to to somebody who might otherwise be denied an opportunity to, to make something to Hopefully, it leads to them getting to make something because people aren't so um, so afraid of making of making weird stuff from time to time.
0: Hmm. And you spoke about Jeffrey Wright being kind of a catalyst for getting everyone else on board. Can you talk a bit about just the, like how you chose this cast because? I was, First of all, I'm just very excited to see Erica Alexander in the Dependence oh, yeah, because man. as a big Maxine kind living of, single, <laughs> <Shah>. <laughs> <laughs> when she says, ride the Maverick, she means it. <laughs> so, like, I was just like very excited to see her in like a substantial role. So, can you just talk about like how you chose the, this cast?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, like Jeffrey was in my mind from the beginning. Um, so he was, he was, uh, the very first person we went to and the very first person we cast. And then, you know, after I got Jeffrey, it was like, it was like, well, that was like, that was, uh, that was like our one, it was like our luck's run out. You know, you can't, you can't get lightning in a bottle twice. So it was like, surely we'll send it to Tracy and she'll say no. And then, Tracy said yes. And it was like, well, what? Okay, well, surely Sterling K. Brown's going to say no. And there was like Sterling K. Brown said yes. And it's like, wait a minute, what? And then, okay, well, we're not going to get Issa Rae and, and Eric Alexander and Leslie Uggams. And then it's like, actually, all three of them said yes. And it's like, what? It was ju- It was just purely like, truly, it did feel insane. Like I was, I sent out the script to all of these actors confident that they were going to say no. And when all of them started saying yes, it was like, you know, this crazy embarrassment of riches. And I think that, To but but to your point, you know, you said you hadn't seen Eric Alexander in a substantial role in a long time. And it's like, you know, I think that these actors don't get offered these kinds of parts a lot, unfortunately. You know, I think that we talk about it a lot. We talk about Every year we talk about the fact that, that black actors do not sort of like get the roles that they deserve. That sort of like they're relegated to side characters and small parts and sort of like, you know, they're you know not romantic leads and not leads at all. Like it's it's just all this. Th- there's just all these all these impediments for black actors to get sort of like meatier parts and get substantial roles, despite the fact that, you know despite the fact that they've done tremendous work in the past and are do, and 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 are, are capable and still very very talented of of accomplishing and and, and and living up to these kinds of great roles you know there's still a, a, a poverty of imagination when it comes to what black actors uh, can accomplish and can do and so um, to me I just wanted uh, I wanted the best people for the job but the sort of like the icing on the sort of the icing on the cake was that these people get to do stuff that they don't normally get to do. You know, that, 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 that Eric Alexander gets a a substantial role and that, that Sterling K Brown, you know, this is Sterling K Brown. Like you've never seen Sterling K Brown before, you know, like I think people are, when people come out, people come out like who people who love this is us. And they're like, I could never have imagined Sterling in this role. And I'm like, I know. And isn't he great? Isn't he amazing in that role? Like, it's just a, there is a Leslie Uggams. She's, she's in her eighties. You know what I mean? And like, like Leslie Uggams is just a legend and, and she deserves like these big roles. She's been doing this forever and she's so good. Like these are people who, if you give them an opportunity are going to impress you. And the problem is that so many people refuse to give them an opportunity. Like, like until this movie, man, I had not seen Jeffrey roll in a lead since Basquiat, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about like decades and decades and decades of a guy who, you know, the vast majority of people who know acting and who know sort of like that work in a very deep way will tell you like Jeffrey Wright is one of our greatest living actors. Like Jeffrey Wright is a national treasure. And why has it been 30 years since I saw him in a lead? You know, like, why, why is this man not getting these kinds of roles, despite the fact that everybody knows he deserves these kinds of roles, because everybody agrees that he's an amazing actor.
0: I mean, I also just want to thank you for giving me Sterling K. Brown as a cooked up gay muscle daddy, because I did not know <laughs> I needed
1: that in my life.
0: I'm glad I have it. I'm glad I have it. Nobody knew. Nobody knew.
1: But I'm glad I have it. Exactly. <laughs>
3: So I, I told you this is one of my favorites this year. I've seen it a couple of times and uh, it, it, it to me is one of those movies. I'm glad I experienced it with different audiences um, cause a lot more people, I had a very different experience in there with it. Um, but I, I love hearing Cord say that um, having Jeffrey on board really got a lot of these other people to say yes. I just think Jeffrey Wright's such a um, not necessarily underappreciated actor because he, he is certainly appreciated, but I think he should just, Like Cord said here, like the fact that he hasn't had a lead film role in however many years is just kind of a crime.
4: My feelings on Jeffrey Wright and this movie are complicated because, again, it's like with killers. I think that what you're trying to say is and what you do say is so vital and important. I just think that the filmmaking around this movie is not as uh, it's not up to the power of the statement of the film. And um. I think that Jeffrey is is great. I, I think he's been better, but I think that he is he balances in this movie what so many actors cannot do of like going to very yeah. serious dark places without letting it sort of weigh him down, and yeah. he maintains a very light and. Mm-hmm. But not unserious tone and i think yep. that it benefits it makes the movie better because of his work in this movie mm-hmm. so um i will be glad to see him get a nomination uh, yeah indeed nominations
3: morning indeed Joey coming in with the hot takes today. Um, But hey, that's what we're here for. (laughs) Um, American (laughs) fiction is uh, in select theaters on December 15th and it expands nationwide in January. All right, as I said, one of two interviews today, so don't go anywhere when we come back. Ava DuVernay. Welcome back again to The Awardist. All right, now time for that second interview uh, for a film that I think is just not getting nearly the attention it deserves this year. Origin, written and directed by Ava DuVernay and starring Ingenue Ellis Taylor, Nisi nash Betts, John Bernthal, uh, uh, Audra McDonald, uh, Vera Farmiga. This cast is just outstanding. And it is a very emotionally complex uh, story um, that uh, I, I think we'll just get into it here with Ava. And uh, we, we will explain the film there and, and uh, the, the emotional complexity. So here now is my interview with Ava DuVernay. Ava DuVernay, I, I got to say, it's it's truly my pleasure to get to speak with you um, about this film, which is, I, t- I can't stop thinking about it. It's been, I think, two weeks at this point since I've seen it. And it's just, uh, it's it's just there resting. And there are a couple scenes that I think about every now and then, and I get teary-eyed and it's just, it's such a beautiful story. So let me, let me, let's start there, actually, um, you know, because Isabel Wilkerson's book was huge upon release uh, in summer 2020, once won ton of praise, um, a Pulitzer Prize, but of course, there's her book and and what it dives into, but there is a very different story here which you're presenting. So, at what point did you realize there was there was a movie here, there was a story to be told?
2: Well, thank you for having me. I really yeah. appreciate it. I um, and I'm moved to hear that you're moved by some of the scenes. Still, yeah. That's the reason why we make we make this work. I was I was really frustrated by the fact that I, when I read the book the first two times, I still didn't understand it really. And I know that I'm a very visual learner. Mm. And so as I read it the third time and it really started to sink in, I thought this is information that people should know and you know, I should make a movie about it. (laughs) Uh, I was really uh, taken by the interconnectedness of all of these things that we feel are very separate in terms of a cultural phenomenon that keeps us apart. And Mm. the idea that, wow, the undergirding, the foundation of it all is the same. This is this is huge. We should all know this. Mm-hmm. But in doing that, you know, it becomes how do you communicate that in a way that's emotional, that's cinematic. And so in, in reviewing all the stories in the book, I was, trying, I was looking for a main character, someone that I could make the movie about. And there's so many stories in the book, it was impossible. Yeah. But who is in the book and who's very clearly guiding the way is Isabel. And mm-hmm. so by really reviewing it and searching for a, a main character, she – You know kind of rose within the narrative to be that when i approached the author about it um, she agreed and and here we are
3: wow okay so did it it, did it well you said she agreed did it take much convincing to say like hey you are my focus your story is the one i want to tell because uh because i mean her story is just um it's it's really profound and 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 deeply emotional and and i think there's so much for the audience to get just from seeing her journey
2: yeah no i was really taken by her journey as well as i was researching the book i had heard about her losses and Mm. was uh you know amazed by and i don't use that word lightly by the ability of someone who's endured that much loss to create you know genius work and uh and so I was very interested in that, and I shared that with her and you know it wasn't a long process to mm. um, to begin begin uh, the writing the screenwriting very different from the the book writing and so she she was gracious in uh, allowing me to interpret her book and interpret the stories mm. that she told me about mm. her life and her family and here we are with origin,
3: yeah, was there a was there anything specific along the way that she told you or anything you you read about her that that was uh, that stuck with you as uh, not necessarily a way in, but just something that was going to really inform the, the, the fabric of the story?
2: All of the stories that she told me that 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 resonated with me are in the film. Mm. You know, about the, you know, the, the intimacy of her family relationships and, you know, which mirror my own and so many people, the way we feel about our loved ones. So that was just a really universal way in, the people we love and the, the mm. loss of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it put me right in the place I needed to be to communicate the things I wanted to communicate from the book, even though mm. those stories weren't in the book. Um, you know, for me creatively, they they really were a passageway to open my mind and allow her, as the author, as I told her story about her life and work, to mm-hmm. really come together in ways that I felt felt were compelling.
3: yeah, I'm curious if there were any ways to which you related to Isabel and her desire, we see, you know, certainly a lot at the beginning of the film, her desire to only work and write when it's something of utmost interest to her. Like, I have to imagine there are people coming to you, wanting you to get involved in their projects, but it's, uh, it's perhaps a difference of uh, kind of work for hire versus like, oh, th- this is something I want to work on.
2: You know, I always love it. I haven't been doing a ton of press interviews for the film yet. But I always love it when someone asks me a question I haven't been asked. So thank oh. you.
3: All right. Sure. Um,
2: that was cool. Um, I haven't even thought of that, but yes, I, uh, it's a privilege to be able to choose. You know, Mm. most people, uh, you know, in their lives and in their work, whatever they're doing, uh, don't don't have that privilege. You go to work and you do the thing that's put in front of you or what you're tasked to do. And so it's a real privilege and honor to be able to choose. That's Mm. the position that I'm in. And so, yes, for me Mm. to work on it for two years or three years or whatever it's going to be every day and the way that I work, which is all in, I've got to love it. I've got to want to do it. It's got to resonate with me and call to me. And so that is a similarity. Uh, that I hadn't seen until you brought it to my attention.
3: <laughs>
2: well, Very well, much
3: happy to, because and, and I ask only because um, you know, as I was watching, I was uh, I was thinking, you know, if if someone who's watching this film doesn't know Isabel doesn't know her story, maybe I mean, hopefully they would know that it is a, a true story. But even, let's say they didn't even know that um, that if they could perhaps see a bit of like. Ava in Isabel, and I, I kind of got caught up a little bit in that at one point um, while, while watching the film, so. Um,
2: yeah, yeah. I, there's, there are similarities and touch points. I hadn't realized that one, but there are others. As a filmmaker, you have to put yourself in the film, you know, mm. and I think the ways that, you know, you see some filmmakers who do that very literally, you know, Mr. Mm. Scorsese at the end of The yeah. the Flower Moon, which, and, you know, or as Hitchcock, they pop up and it's like, okay, yeah. But even more beautifully is the ways in which, you know, he or, you know, anyone, Greta or whomever, you bring yourself to the work, to the image making, to the very notes that you're giving the actor and adjustments to the way that you're moving the camera. You know, for example, you know, I... Knew uh, and had been talked with Isabel about her the loss of her her loved ones, but mm-hmm. how do you render that in a way that communicates the emotional depth of grief? Um, that you know, for me, it was when I experienced it, it felt like I was in a in a in a black hole, and I mm-hmm. just wanted leaves to to bury me to fall on top of me, and so yeah. that is what I rendered in the film that's me in the film. And so I I think it's fun to watch all kinds of films. And, you know, I watch Nolan films and I see the things he does that feel like him and, Mm -hmm. uh, or Kugler, you know, very, Mm -hmm. that's, that's what filmmaking is. It's interpreting life through our lens. And so, um, so, but certainly in some of the more personal aspects of this, I, I could see myself in it
3: hmm. OK, I'm going to come back to that in a second, because uh, first I want to ask you, though, uh, you know, Isabel, then, of course, is your your character through which we are going to tell this story. Uh, why was Ingenue Ellis Taylor your Isabel?
2: Because she's a phenom and a superstar mm. that, uh, for whatever reason, has has not uh, been given the spotlight in the way that i i feel she deserves uh mm-hmm. she is she can do anything i'd work with her once before on when they see us mm-hmm. so i knew the depth of the ability and the commitment and yeah. that's what i needed for this i needed someone who was going to ride and ride with me you know who we can go be walking on the streets of delhi in india didn't mm-hmm. need a fancy trailer and a bunch of people around who was going to be ready to run and gun it was going to go deep in this very kind of cerebral adventure you mm-hmm. know an intellectual pursuit a mystery that this woman is unfolding that there was no scene where she had to be hysterical or the big scene where she throws you know those scenes didn't exist in the film so yeah. that showy work uh was not on the page it needed uh a, an internal depth mm-hmm. uh, to make the performance pop and so you needed someone who could do that and she can do all of that and more and everything so it was a a, a real joy and pleasure to have an opportunity to work with her again. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, and look, uh, there's something certainly to be enjoyed about big showy scenes, but uh, to to live in those depths that you're talking about, that's not easy. Um, and, and in this case, you know, this story asks a lot of Ingenue emotionally, um, because, you know, Isabel is, uh, she's already kind of feeling the weight of things happening in the world, but then she endures these, uh, in you know, a very heartbreaking, devastating losses, uh, you know, more than once. Um, what, what were the conversations like with, with Ingenue about navigating those different beats because they, they happen at different times and, uh, some are, are tragic and, and sudden and devastating and others she knows are coming, but it doesn't make it any less, uh, you know, heartbreaking.
2: Yeah. Well, because, you know, it's, it's so personal because we have to draw from our own experiences of grief. Uh, but I think, you know, our conversations were, you know, she's a, an artist who uh, she does so much preparation and so mm. much of her own groundwork that when we do finally talk, her questions are so pointed and precise. Mm. I need to know this, mm. was, you know what I mean? And you're just, okay, I'm just gonna answer that. Now there's some artists you talk to and they're just like, I'm I wide open, just what? What do I do? Mm-hmm. What are you doing? And it's just, you're just throwing everything at them and seeing what they like and grab onto and what, they, what will anchor them. But she has such a precision in her work and she had done so much prep and her own, um, you know, for herself that by the time we got together on any pers- pers- particular thing, there might be things that I want, hey, I want you to know this. But usually it was very much about a process of her, you know, asking mm-hmm. for exactly what she needed and me focusing on trying to provide that.
3: Mm. Um, now that we've talked more about, you know, the emotional impact of the story, how does that impact you as the person bearing the weight of telling this woman's story?
2: You know, I, 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 I always feel a little weird answering that question because I feel like my answer makes me feel like a psychopath or something, but uh, I, I just shut it off. I can't, Mm. I can't, whether it's Selma or 13th or when they see us, like, I I can't be a functioning person if I am feeling all that right on top every day. I do my prep. I write the scripts. I cry. I mourn. I research. I, I'm, I'm challenged. I'm upset. I do all those things. I eat too much ice cream. I do all the things. And I prep so much that by the time I get to the day and they have to be, those images have to be rendered and made, you know, I'm able to shut it off and function from mm. a very technical place and be there yeah. for the actors and my crew who are experiencing it for the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I go through it before so that I don't have to. And then it happens again in the edit. Yeah. Just with my editor, Spencer Averick, and I fall apart with it again there. But it's kind of on the set, I'm very much, I'm very robocop i'm very terminator in the the (laughs) sweetest terminator you can find but like in terms of emotionally i just i just kind of you know you have to in order to make make the pictures
3: no of course i I, that makes complete sense i don't think it sounds psychopathic at all that's (laughs) okay you you got you got a job to do you got to get everyone through the day uh so that makes sense yeah um several movies and lots of television uh to your credit what could you have not prepared yourself for that happened while making this film
2: I can kinda of prepare myself for the completely different person that I am than when I started. I, oh. I really I it's hard to explain, but I feel changed by it. Um, both from a place of the actual work and the way that I worked, mm-hmm. which was very I felt in the flow of work and life in a way that I'd never experienced before. Mm. I I felt that i was in the perfect place doing exactly what i was meant to do and i knew exactly how to do it mm-hmm. you know that meant 37 countries in 3 days uh excuse me 37 it's, 37 days in 3 countries intricate. right right and um That's and, what I was going
3: to say. Were you on the amazing race there? No, no, <laughs> no, no.
2: I could do that though. I want yeah.
3: to.
2: <laughs> um but yeah, 37 days, three countries, indie budget, no studio, mm. challenging subject matter, yeah. crisscrossing continents and cultures and time time periods and, you know, half period, half contemporary storyline, all the things and just every day was joyous and uncomplicated and you know, I'd never experienced that. Oh, you know, point A to point B. This is exactly mm-hmm. what you should be doing in the way. And so it, I came out on the other side in a place of real, uh, you know, peace and and passion, and just kind of feeling like uh, you know, I, I turned fifty in that year as well, and it was just like, oh my gosh, Molly Shannon, you know, that Molly Shannon. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm fifty. I'm, I'm fifty. 50, 50 yeah. you know, like. Something has happened here, and it really is real, and I felt it on the making of it, and I feel oh. it in my life. I have not been happier. I would I, I get mm. emotional saying this, but I have not been happier than I was making that film and in the afterglow today, mm. Mm. so unexpected.
3: Yeah, yeah, but it sounds like it's, it's something that was supposed to happen for you at the time it happened.
2: Mm-hmm. I think so, perfect yeah. timing. And- A blessing.
3: Yeah. Um, Well, as we've kind of mentioned here, but the um, the the film is uh, the the story is uh, big in scope. Um, And in Isabel's research, of course, she finds um, these very prevalent uh, examples of caste system uh, at its worst um, in Nazi Germany and India. Um, You mentioned that you, you know, you filmed a bit um, in India. But first, I want to ask you, as you were writing, Was it always part of your script that you would bring those stories to life, that they would live kind of very separately, uh, or did that come later?
2: No, no. It was a part of the script that the book would come to life as she Mm -hmm. discovered and researched the stories. And so, you know, you've seen it in in the way that she's getting pieces of information that culminates in actual realizations in her thesis as it goes along. Mm. Um, You know, slivers of stories, pieces of stories that – Thread together in the end, both within their own time frame, but then also with other stories. Um, all of that was in the script. I'll have to say, the script uh, was a hard script to read. And you know, there were a lot of folks that just didn't get the script. Um, mm. Because if you imagine like the last third of the film, the third act, mm-hmm. when there's things zigzagging and kind of coming together in, sure. in, in ways, imagine reading that every subject header. You know, every scene description cross, cross, and you're just like, wait, what right. are we, what are, what are we doing? And so obviously some of that is in the edit with Spencer, my, my, my great friend and editor, but it was also in the script, that intention. And so for some, it was this script is a little, I don't get it. I don't know who all these people are and what's going on. I knew that it, it could work. And, um, and so that's one of the cases or instances where you just have to kind of trust your gut. And I also had a couple of good mm-hmm. friends who were in my ear, who did get it. Guillermo mm. del Toro um, oh. is my hero in this movie in so many ways. You know, at times when I thought, I don't know about this, I, I don't, he pushed me to, he said, you know, break out of the traditional form. Why do you have to stay within this? Why do you think you have to do it this way? You can do something different that's done, been done by someone like you, which was a mm. big you know, tripping up when you can experiment, mi amiga, you can do yeah. it. And um, even in the script, you know, so he read the script a couple of times before I shot, you know, checked in on me and we talked while I was shooting. And uh, and then also in the edit, he came to my edit room, he sat with me, we talked so many times. I mean, he just, he was a great champion to say, be irreverent. Mm. and uh, And I really took that to heart. My friend JJ Abrams, also, it was very, very, um, you know, just fellow artists who were instrumental in in sharing with me, you know, as long as you see it, that's what matters and keep going. So I'm grateful mm. to them. Mm.
3: Yeah. I mean, if look, if there's anyone uh, in the world who could tell you be irreverent, I think it's Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> he, he knows a thing or two about that. It's worked that's out all amazing. right for him. Yeah. Um, filming in India. I do want to ask you about that. You said you filmed in Delhi, correct? Yeah yeah that's i visited delhi uh 16 years ago or so and um when i tell people about the experience uh you know one of the first thing i things i say is that it's it's uh it's an overload on the senses Mm -hmm. um and there's so much to see and uh smell and uh, just to take in um Mm But but once you can get past all of that, uh, I, I, there's the market that you guys are in. And I'm, obviously, there are markets all around the city. But there's something that felt so familiar about it. I'm like, were we in the same market? I don't know. It's just uh, so yeah. I, I felt a little bit of a extra like, oh, I feel like I've been there while watching. But it is just um, a, a fascinating country.
2: and I love that you've been there and you... Yeah, and I felt right to you when you saw it. I yeah. think, you know, for me it's interesting because I am from Los Angeles. I'm from Compton. Um, that's not even L.A. proper. That is like a half hour outside of L.A. Right. And in L.A., it's a sprawl, you know. I mean, mm. you can live your whole life in Compton and never even go to Northridge. You know, it just, it just, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just so huge. And I'm used to having space. So that's why I find myself not super comfortable in New York. Even when I had to shoot, when they see us there, I had to live there for a year. I feel claustrophobic. Shockingly, in India, which has ten times the amount of people as in New York, more probably more, I uh, and it's very congested and very dense. I felt so free mm. and so uh, not overloaded. I go to New York, I feel overloaded. I feel overstimulated. Something about India, which is even more so in terms of the stimulation felt very comfortable and mm. delightful and uh and i just i felt free and happy to be shooting there i can't wait i need to find a story to go back yeah uh, it, was, it was really really wonderful the color everywhere oh. was something interesting we were yeah we shot so much film that's never going to make it never in the movie uh. we just shot a whole nother movie wow uh, because we couldn't couldn't get enough
3: Oh, wow. That's fascinating. And of course, I mean, the film industry there is, is sprawling. And, um, I did, did you have any challenge at all, even trying to, you know, figure out your crew and all that kind of stuff or that was all
2: Man, huge. Easy. They have a bigger film industry than we do. Yeah. Uh, you know, great crafts people across the board. There was a woman who did our production design there. I was just like, can I put you in my suitcase? Can you come home? <laughs> Such incredible professionals that we worked with there, um, who just, you know, have it down pat. You know, the spaces we were in, we were moving in, production services partners there were incredible. It was just it was it was top notch. Wonderful.
3: Yeah. And everywhere you turn the camera, it's something
2: like something interesting. Something yeah. Beautiful. The decay, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, the community, the colors, the ritual, the modernity. I yeah. mean, it was it was pretty fantastic.
3: Yeah, well, um, I can't uh, let you go before we talk about uh, the supporting cast of this film. Um, Niecy Nash Betts as uh, as Isabel's as well as cousin Marion, John Bernthal as her husband Brett, um, Audra McDonald. My God, no, my God, that scene just sitting on the couch telling a story, blown away.
2: Mm-hmm. I know, <sighs> I know. She's we we'll call we we'll call her a one scene wonder. Uh, I actually called her and I i was—I cold called her. I did not know her. Really? And I said, this is who I am. And she was like, oh, I know you. It was a very sisterly conversation. Mm-hmm. I said, look, I'm calling. I need someone who can just smash one scene. This is one scene. It's the only scene in the script where we don't jump out and see what the mm-hmm. person is saying on purpose because I just want to stay on this actor's face. I said, I would need you to go from New York to Atlanta and take a pedal jumper from Atlanta to Savannah. I have $4 to pay you plus hugs. Uh, it's gonna be no time for anything except a day of rehearsal and you jump right in. Would you, she said, tell me what day, what time. She came, yeah. she was lovely, did one rehearsal. She, uh, the day before she sat down, the whole crew is just looking, I mean, even entrepreneurs in the scene like, what are you doing lady? She is incredible in that scene. Nisi Nash Betts, oh. you know, she was she was on her TV show, uh, her head was number one on an ABC TV show. Mm. She was able to arrange to be off every Friday for four weeks. So she would leave her set on Thursday, get on a red eye, go to Atlanta, shoot with us on Friday, come back on Saturday to shoot. I mean, it was wow. just incredible. Uh, folks, John Bernthal, didn't know him. Uh, really needed someone who had a bit of swagger. Like, yeah. can you pull Anjanu Ellis? Like, what are we really saying here? Can you, mm-hmm. does it feel like it matches? It was important to me. And um, first of all, I walked into the restaurant. I was like, Oh yeah. They got it. Yeah. You got it. You got mm-hmm. it. But then we talked such an incredible, generous actor. He came with such a, a, a open heart and a real, you know, uh, uh, a spirit of 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 wanting to serve the story, mm. and wanting to support Anjana and in her performance. They worked together on King Richard. Uh, mm, he was the right, coach. Right. He was the mother, uh, and so um, so it was uh, you know instant and great chemistry with them. They knew each other. And so yeah, you you know Connie Nielsen, Nick Offerman, Blair Underwood, Vera
3: Farmiga, yeah,
2: Vera Farmiga, my 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 lovely lovely Vera, I worked with her mm-hmm. before on When They See yeah. Us. A lot of people who I'd worked with before, worked with Nick before on Colin Black and White. Just my favorites, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and people who I'd always wanted to work with, always that wanted to work with Connie. I think she's a badass. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was it was just a a, a pleasure every day.
3: Yeah, I mean they um, they delivered and then some. It's just a stellar cast, um, and and so I cannot congratulate you more on that on on the entire film. It's just it's a it's a really uh, stunning story, and um, and I, I hope folks when they sit down to watch are just ready to absorb and experience uh, and and Isabel's life because it's uh, it's one worth uh, going along on the ride for. It.
2: Oh, I'm so happy to hear you say that. Ava,
3: thank you so much for your time and congratulations. Thank
2: you. Thank you so much.
3: Okay. Well, um, I, I think I, I said it there, uh, got very emotional in this film. It's just, I think it's, it's just beautiful. And I really encourage people to see it. Angenue Ellis Taylor is, uh, Really, I I don't want to call it a moment because I hope it's something that lasts and sustains and she continues to to get recognition in these really fantastic roles um, because she's just a really incredible actress. And of course, uh, you know, King Richard and When They See Us uh, have helped boost her profile. Um, So please, folks, see this film. It is in select theaters now and will continue to expand. Joey, we did it. That is it for this week's episode of The Awardist. As always, uh, thanks for being here with me. Oh, I'm sure you mean that. Wow, wow, <laughs> we're gonna end it like that with such. Well, no, we could keep going for another three hours
4: and call it "Killers of
3: the Flower Moon" too. Kill, killers of the, k- killers of the Awardist podcast is, yes. is what it is. Yeah, yes. <laughs> that's what it is. Uh, all right, but but in all seriousness, thanks so much to all of you for listening. If you like what you're hearing here on the Awardist. Please do follow, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation with us going, you can follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials. We are at EW on X, formerly known as Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at Jared Hall. We will see you back here next week and every day at EW.com.
4: And you can also tag at Joey Nolfi.
3: I was going to ask if you wanted to throw that in. (laughs) Glad you did. (laughs) Thanks, Joey. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Jared. This episode of The Awardist is hosted and produced by Jared Hall and produced and edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.